Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In chapter seven of his book, The Most Good You Can Do, Peter Singer is considering the possible motivations for effective altruists and effective altruism. And you could say, well, why does this matter? Isn't it enough just to do the right thing to get with the program? Singer thinks that like most ethicists, unless you have the right motivation, it's not that the act itself is going to be bad. He is a consequentialist, right? But you're not going to consistently do the right thing or the the good thing or the better thing as an effective altruist. So if a person wants to figure out how to motivate themselves, let's say they get into the movement and they're like, oh, I buy into this. How are they going to keep doing it after a month, after a year as a choice of life path or, or lifestyle, which is what effective altruism really is. It's a philosophy of life. So the question is, well, what would provide the motivation for effective altruism, not just a single effective altruistic acts, but as a kind of program. So he considers the possibility of conformity to social norms. And, you know, you could imagine a community in which people are brought up as effective altruists, sort of along the lines of John Stuart Mill talking in utilitarianism about this possibility of getting many people to buy into it, and then it would become part of the culture. Well, that's not part of the culture now. So being an effective altruist actually means being countercultural in a number of important ways. So merely conformity to social norms is not going to, in most cases, get you effective altruism. And he doesn't consider any big hypothetical examples there. A stronger contender would be what he calls their universal love. And he doesn't dwell on this because this is more of a popular book, but he could have in mind something like in Chinese philosophy, we have Moism named after Mozu, right? Which preached a universal benevolence to all. We can see that there are similarities to that in Western philosophy, sort of a universal benevolence towards all people was preached by, among others, the Stoics. There's a number of people and movements across history that have talked about this. And you could think about, you know, Christianity and this universal agape that's displayed more in what you do than in what you feel. Couldn't that be a sufficient motivation? So Singer says that, you know, sometimes we hear all we need is love or we declare our fellow humans are brothers and sisters. Could that work? And he brings up David Hume, who he talks about several times in this chapter. And he says, Hume says, there's no such passion in human minds as the love of mankind merely as such independent of personal qualities or of services or of relation to oneself. And then he talks about Darwin talking about giving a scientific underpinning to Hume's observation. And he brings up, you know, Franz de Waal as well. Singer thinks that you can, by looking at human beings and our biological and evolutionary makeup, and he talks about this in other places, you can get something like love coming out of that as, you know, normal. I mean, obviously some people, because of their, their trauma or 
things going on in their brain don't feel any attachment to anybody, but this doesn't get you anything remotely close to universal. And it's a great quote here from Elliot Sober and David Sloan Wilson, group selection favors within group niceness and between group nastiness. So universal love is not going to cut it not as a motivation, according to Singer. It could be a program. You could say that universal love is something that is being enacted by both utilitarianism and effective altruism, but it can't be the motivation for it. Well, what about something else? What about empathy? This is a word that's thrown around a lot by people today. He brings up the example of Barack Obama writing to a young girl and saying, we don't have enough empathy. I suggest you look it up. And so, you know, well, what about empathy? Could this be the basis for some sort of altruistic ethics that would think about things and tabulate and correlate and pick the best solution like utilitarianism or effective altruism do. I put all these other terms up here because I, I do want to signal the fact that this is not a radically new idea. The term has changed, right? Empathy is something, it's a very 20th and 21st century word. In the past, David Hume, for example, talks about sympathy, as do so many other people in the 17th and 18th century, not well into the 19th century as well, right? Compassion is another term that we see that's covering a lot of similar ground. And somebody might quibble and say, oh, no, 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 I, I distinguish empathy from compassion. Well, you only do that from a theoretical perspective that not everybody agrees with, the ordinary person on the street, and is not reflected in the history of, of ideas. Even going further back into ancient and medieval ideas, we could talk about pity or mercy. Misericordia can be translated as either of those. Eleos, from which we get the, you know, Eleos seminary professions like nursing and doctoring and being an EMT comes from the Greek word for pity. And whenever we see that, we often think, oh, you're looking down on somebody and pitying them. You know, it's very similar to what uh, we nowadays call empathy. So there's a long history of thinking that empathy broadly constructs Strewed would play a role in moral reasoning and in guiding our actions. But we have to ask, well, okay, what is empathy then? It's a nice buzzword. It sounds really good. If it's a good thing, maybe it would be even better if we had more and more of it. And Singer says, well, hold on there. We need to distinguish between emotional aspects of empathy and cognitive aspects of empathy. You know, they can work hand in hand. They often do, but they're not exactly the same thing. And so we need to make some fine distinctions here. He brings up the interpersonal reactivity inventory that mentions four distinct components. Is this the only way to parse out empathy? No, but it's, it's pretty good. Empathetic concern is one of them. The tendency to experience feelings of warmth, compassion, and concern for other people. That's what a lot of people have in mind when they're talking about empathy, right? The tendency to experience feelings of warmth, compassion, and concern with other people. Obviously, this overlaps with care, with attachment, with all sorts of other affective emotional matters within that register, doesn't it? Personal distress. This is the second one. One's own feelings of personal unease and discomfort in reaction to the emotions of others. Now, this does not mean feeling bad because somebody else is feeling happy. They probably should be more clear that it's about feeling distress or, you know, some sort of upset in relation to distressful or negative or troublesome feelings on the part of other people. So you see somebody else getting hurt. You feel bad because you can tell that they're hurt. That is what he's talking about there, right? 
could be with anger, could be with jealousy, could be with fear, could be all sorts of things along these lines. So those are aspects of emotional empathy, right? Those are what a lot of people mean when they say empathy. But there are some important cognitive aspects as well. And I'm going to talk about what they call the fourth one, third, just to sort of get it off the plate. Fantasy is the tendency to imagine oneself experiencing the feelings and performing the actions of fictitious characters. So this part would be, you know, what goes on when we watch a movie and we identify with a character. I always get kind of, you know, because of my own personal history, I see somebody making a difficult sacrifice against their own interests for the good of another person. Sometimes that can make me feel a little uh, affected, you could say, or, you know, when I see funeral scenes or something like that, sometimes I, I, I get affected. It's partly imagining myself there with the characters who don't even exist, right? And this can happen with space shows or songs or pick whatever you want. You know, there's a song by the metal group Tank about a family who loses a child who falls through the ice and is never going to grow up. Well, every time I hear that, I get a little bit uh, teary-eyed. Right? That's, that's an example of fantasy. Now, that's partly cognitive because we're using our imagination. It is also partly emotional. Here's where we get to the really important part. Perspective taking. Perspective taking, the tendency to adopt the point of view of other people. And this is where we see what we're calling empathy in some respect overlapping with, you know, what Daniel Goleman has called emotional intelligence. We see this in all sorts of ethical theories going way back into antiquity and all the way into the 20th and 21st century. So this is a really important part. It's not simply feeling what somebody else is feeling or feeling in reaction to what they're feeling. It's not simply feeling attachment to them. It's not simply emotional contagion or anything like that. It's actually being able to say, oh man, I can tell that person is hurting. I'm not actually hurting, but I can actually understand that they are and that matters, right? Even though I'm not myself feeling it. That's cognitive. So then we can ask, okay, For effective altruism, is empathy what we want? Is that going to get us the sort of actions that effective altruism thinks are important? And and the, the, you know, long and short of it is emotional empathy is not only not needed, but sometimes is actually going to interfere with effective altruism. And Singer brings up examples that I think many of us already know about where we can focus on one single person and feel empathy towards them. But if we think about their village, we're not moved in a similar way. Or if we think about one needy child and then we think about a hundred needy children, we're less moved in relation to the emotionally moved in relation to the hundred needy children, even though there's, you know, a hundred there's 99 more of them. There's 100 times the one child. We should be 100 times as moved. We're not. That doesn't work that way. He also brings up the trolley problem, which is you know quite interesting, but we can put aside for the moment. So sometimes emotional empathy is not going to lead to effective altruistic behavior. Well, why not? So, you know, Singer tells us that effective altruism is not exactly the same thing as utilitarianism, but it's covering a lot of the same ground, right? And we value each person as a person from a sort of higher perspective of who is being helped, who is being harmed. Can we produce more good? Can we prevent more bad? Can we, you know, alleviate suffering? All those sorts of things. And so he tells us that effective altruism 
Judaism is really going to be relying upon reason. He says, in particular, they agree with the utilitarians that other things being equal, we ought to do the most good we can. This is when he brings up the trolley problem. The trolley problem, if you're not familiar with it, I mean, it's been done ad nauseum. Runaway trolley going down the tracks. You can flip a switch. If you flip the switch, it doesn't kill the five people that it's hurtling towards, but does kill one person. There's a variant of pushing a fat man off onto the tracks from a bridge. It all boils down to the same thing. Are you willing to shift things around in such a way as to reduce the amount of harm or produce the greater amount of good. Effective altruism and, and utilitarianism are going to be using reason to decide this. And then it becomes what we typically call a no-brainer, right? Obviously, you flip the switch and you save the five people, even though one person is going to die. Empathy may not get you there. Empathy might actually have you so fixated on the plight of the one person or the fat man that you're about to push off the bridge that you allow the other five to be crushed by the trolley wheels. And so, you know, he goes on and he says, in response to those who think that what the world most needs is an expansion of empathy, Bloom writes... Our best hope for the future is not to get people to think of all humanity as family. That's impossible. It lies instead in an appreciation of the fact that even if we don't empathize with distant strangers, their lives have the same value as the lives of those we love. Now, that is really, really important here. What's going to get you that valuation of the lives of people that you don't know and don't care about in an emotional sense being as valuable as those of your family or friends or coworkers or whoever else it is or yourself. It's going to be reason, the faculty of reason. Here he brings up Hume again and he says, Hume tells us that reason can never initiate an action because all action starts with a passion or desire. Hume wrote, reason is and ought to be only the slave of the passions. Now that is actually, I should point out, a misreading, a truncated reading of Hume. And it's Hume being quite rhetorical and then being misunderstood by generations of people afterwards who don't actually read the portion of the treatise that this comes from. Because if they did, they would realize that Hume actually talks about how reason actually does motivate action in that very section in relation to calm passions or things like that. So it's a bit of a misunderstanding. And instead of trying to break that down, Singer just brings up Kant and then he talks about Henry Sidgwick. And Henry Sidgwick, the last of the great 19th century utilitarians, shared with Kant the belief that ethics has a rational basis, but he did more than Kant to make this a credible form of motivation. He held that there are self-evident moral principles or axioms which we grasp through our reasoning capacity, not just through feeling our way into them. And so here's the most relevant one. The good of any one individual is of no more importance from the point of view, if I may say, so of the universe than the good of any other, unless there, that is, there are special grounds for believing the more good is likely to be realized in the one case than the other. Eventually he gets to this. He says, here's another principle. It's evident to me is that as a rational being, I'm bound to aim at good generally insofar as it's attainable by my efforts, not merely a particular part of it, right? And this particularity is a great thing to bring up because when it comes to benevolence, doing good to others, the utilitarians already signaled this way back in the time of Jeremy Bentham as the problem of particular versus general or universal benevolence, right? And this whole idea about tying in with your own social group, well, that's particular benevolence. That's 
particularity, and that's that's a problem from a utilitarian point of view. Sidgwick, coming back to him, deduces this maxim of benevolence. Each person is morally bound to regard the good of any other individual as much as his own, except insofar as he judges it to be less when impartially viewed or less certainly knowable or attainable by him. And Singer says, okay, this is a pretty good basis for effective altruism, this expression of, you know, utilitarianism. Reason would be what would be motivating us. Doesn't mean that we rule out empathy altogether. If that wants to be a support for reason, that that's a-okay. If it interferes with reason, now we have a problem because the whole goal is to ultimately get to effective altruism as a consistent disposition, decision-making procedure, and way of life. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.